0: Welcome back to the Not So Grateful Dead podcast. It is your host, Grayson Decker, back at it again with another Wednesday episode. Today's episode is very upsetting, and that's all I'm going to say about it. We finished up Spooky Week on Sunday. I hope you thoroughly enjoyed the week. I had a whole lot of fun making the episodes, recording them, researching. All of the things it was just all very fun and we do actually have a spooky basket winner the drawing was not very big there was i think maybe max 10 people but that's okay uh Allie witzel is the winner of the spooky basket and that is my lovely sister-in-law so cheers to Ali. she Entered and won. So that's exciting. And also, thank you so much, Allie, for supporting my podcast and being here. I really appreciate it. Makes me very happy. I have one show recommendation, and it's actually from my sister, Mackenzie, who recommended it to me. So thank you, Mackenzie. But it's called The Patient, and it is on Hulu, and it has Steve Carell from The Office, Michael Scott. He's playing the main character. He's a therapist, and a lot of crazy shit happens, so I think you should go watch it because it is phenomenal, and I really like it. Well, I think that's about it. Let's get into this episode. Dayton Leroy Rogers was born in the state of Idaho on September 30th, 1953. Shortly after his birth, he and his family moved to Oregon, and this would actually be where Dayton would end up spending the rest of his life. Dayton was one of seven children, and his mother and father were Otis and Jasper Bell Rogers. From a very early age, Dayton was essentially taught that women who had sexual relationships when they weren't married were, in short, whores. Not only is this a bad mindset to have, but especially for a young and impressionable mind. For young Dayton, it almost seems as though if these women were not like his mother, they were essentially whores and there was no in-between. There was absolutely no gray area. Dayton's father was also, along with putting these mindsets on his children, he was also physically abusive to them. So, that is just not good. Not good for the mental aspect of a child, very traumatic. In junior high, it is reported that Dayton Rogers had his first run-in with law enforcement, and this was because he was shooting a BB gun at car windshields and essentially trying to just break them. Along with the mindset about women that his father had planted, Just their conservative and religious mindsets, they basically had beliefs that women were meant to dress conservatively and modest, only ever showing their skin from the ankles down. And this does prove to be prevalent later in the story, so just keep that in mind. It is said that Dayton would actually watch his sisters undress, but specifically had this weird thing about his sister's feet and ankles. He was, in simple terms, obsessed with them, which is just fucking weird, if you ask me. In 1972, Dayton Leroy Rogers was 18 years old, and he was married to a girl who was two years en- two years younger than him. Sorry, so she was just 16. He had started working as a painter, and during this time, Dayton really did not enjoy being in a monogamous relationship, so he began looking for women outside of his marriage. Dayton begins driving around Oregon, just looking for women, and he finds a 15-year-old female hitchhiker. The two of them then went out to this field where they had sex, and Dayton takes her home and then... The very next day, the two of them are out back at that field again having sexual relations with one another. The second time the two of them had sex, it does not end anywhere near the same as the first time. And after the two of them had finished having sex, Dayton, with no provocation, takes a knife and stabs a girl in the stomach. Just stabs her randomly. It was reported that Dayton told this girl that he did this because she did not love him and that this is because she had a boyfriend. For one, this is literally just the second time that y'all have met, so please just chill. And for two, you're quite literally cheating on your wife with this girl and you're going to be upset with her for having a boyfriend. That is hypocritical as fuck, but I digress. Dayton then takes this young girl to the hospital and is put. Pl- he is placed on parole for four years, sorry, but not in prison. So, that is just a little weird to me. He attempted to murder this girl because she just didn't love him after two times of meeting him, and he is just on parole for four years, not behind bars. A little wild, if you ask me. Dayton really began at this time changing into the terrifying man that we are going to discuss today. He began fantasizing about committing these terrible acts towards women like trigger warning, raping them, and hurting them just physically. Not only is he fantasizing about these things, but these are the things that are getting Dayton sexually aroused. This hatred for women is sexually appealing to him, which just is sickening and uh. Just gives me a terrible feeling in my stomach. It's so scary. This goes even further with Dayton because of the initial seed that was planted in his brain about hatred towards women. And this was because of his father's behavior, religiously speaking, about how women are less than men. In 1976, Dayton at this time is still serving the four-year probation sentencing for the stabbing of the young girl he had picked up on the two separate occasions. He is also 22 years old at this point in our timeline. Dayton sees another opportunity when two young girls are walking alone in the rain and they were just 15 and 16 years old. Dayton picks up the girls and he entices them to drink alcohol and smoke weed. He stops and parks a car eventually, and the three of them are just sort of hanging out for a bit. And this is before Dayton completely switches demeanors. Like they describe, he just literally goes cold. A whole switch is flipped in his brain. It's just wild. Dayton reaches down to the glove box of his car and he pulls out a knife and he uses this against the young girls while he hog ties them both. He then, trigger warning, rapes one of the girls, and after this heinous act, he realizes that his car is stuck in the mud where he had parked it, and so he decides that he is actually going to cut the ropes that he had used to tie these women up, and he does this so that they can actually help him push the vehicle out of the mud as if they're going to fucking help you, you piece of shit. Obviously, these women take off running the moment that they are cut loose and the doors to the car open who could fucking blame them? Not me. Of course you would run away. Why, why, why would they help you? Why? (laughs) Make it make sense. Dayton was actually not charged for the rape of the young girl, which I find absolutely disgusting, but he was charged with coercion. Not only was he charged, but he was charged while he was still on parole for the first act, the stabbing of the other girl, so Dayton Rogers did actually go to jail for five years at this point. Eventually, Dayton was released, but almost instantaneously, he was back out offending again. After this, Dayton would go in and out of prison many times due to trigger warning, rapes, and sexual assaults. In 1982, Dayton was making bigger changes in his life and he really had everyone convinced that this time he had been rehabilitated. Dayton was remarried and he had just had a kid, so things were really looking up for him. Not only was Dayton changing for the good in the family realm of things, but his family had actually started to frequently attend church, and he also went into business with his father-in-law. The two of them would repair garden machinery. Though Dayton at this point was seemingly doing really well, During his exit interview, he is asked about any regrets that he may have had. Dayton goes on to tell this exit interviewer that what he learned is next time not to leave witnesses, which this is fucking terrifying. Imagine this man saying this shit to you as you know that you can't do anything about it and that he had already been released from parole. They simply just had to let him go after such a... Gut wrenching statement coming from him. Just terrifying. August 7th, 1987, at 3 a.m., there are calls being reported to authorities that there is some sort of commotion going on outside of Denny's restaurant in Portland, Oregon. There were reports of screams and cries coming from the Denny's parking lot. When people from inside of Denny's start hearing these things, they all head outside to watch whatever is happening unfold. And this is when the nude unconscious body of Jennifer Smith is found. Jennifer was just 25 at the time and she was a mother of two children. Jennifer had been brutally attacked specifically with a knife. She had deep gashes covering her body, and not only the knife wounds, but Jennifer had been, sadly, trigger warning, raped as well. Immediate attention is put onto Jennifer and saving her life, but as this is happening, the killer gets away in his truck. At the scene of this crime, there was a large amount of evidence left behind, and it seemed as though the killer had left in this huge rush, which, as we know, people saw him like flee the scene so we we know it was a pretty big rush the actual knife from the attack was left behind in a bush there was a shoelace and then there was one tennis shoe and then there were also many shooter bottles of vodka and orange juice found uh, like at the scene keep that in mind as we just talked about the killer did flee the scene in his truck but one guest at the denny's did actually follow him And this person went as far as almost running out of gas to try and follow them and they made it from portland oregon to oregon city before stopping the pursuit and from this they were able to obtain a license plate number for this truck so That's really good. From this license plate number, authorities are able to find out that the owner of this vehicle is Dayton Leroy Rogers. Immediately with this newfound information, authorities headed to the home of Dayton Leroy Rogers, but as one could have guessed, Dayton was nowhere to be found. His wife Sherry was the one to open the door. Sherry was able to tell authorities that Dayton had been working at a car not a car shop, a lawn care repair shop in Hubbard, Oregon, and to possibly check out that shop because he might in fact be there. Authorities head straight there and find the truck that they had seen at Denny's, and an investigator actually hovers their hand over the hood of this truck and they can feel the warmth coming from it, and that proved to them that it had just been ran. So, this person who showed up in this truck, Dayton, had essentially just gotten there. The car was just turned off. And not only this, but investigators actually spotted a few drops of blood that were on the doorsteps of the shop itself. This is when detectives spot Dayton Rogers inside of the shop through a window, and he is sitting there trying to saw a bolt in half And he had this sort of bandage on his hand as if he had just cut it. But after all of this evidence against him, Dayton was adamant that he had been at this shop the entire night. And we know that this isn't true because the license plate number and his truck had been at the scene of Jennifer Smith's crime. And not only this, but the truck was warm. So they knew he was lying. Dayton Leroy Rogers is then put under arrest at this point and taken into custody. After the authorities had arrived on scene, they were able to get Jennifer Smith to the hospital, but despite all efforts, Jennifer sadly did succumb to her injuries. Upon further investigation, authorities find out that Dayton had a sort of routine at this point in his life. He would go home, have dinner with his wife, Sherry, and his son, and then after dinner, he would go back to work, so to speak. Devastatingly, Sherry was under this impression that Dayton's business had just really been booming and he was just so busy working, and because of this, he had to work overnight, instead of working overnight however dayton was actually driving his vehicle up and down the red light district of portland oregon and the red light district is the area where the sex workers would frequent he was actually very well known by the sex workers in this area and he even had a nickname called gambler steve jennifer smith was one of these sex workers that encountered dayton rogers Once Jennifer Smith had been picked up by Dayton Rogers, he brutally attacked her, tied her up, and then he began stabbing her. Jennifer was actually able to escape the truck, and she attempted to run away, but Dayton did catch up to her, and he got on top of her and began brutally attacking her again. During all of this commotion, Jennifer had made it known that she was being attacked by screaming for help which did gain the attention of the individuals inside of the Denny's restaurant. It was at this point that Dayton fled the scene of the crime, and as we talked about earlier, Dayton was followed by a bystander and... This is how he eventually got caught. When Dayton was 33 years old, he was arrested for the murder of Jennifer Smith. While authorities had Dayton in custody, he decided that he wanted to make a call to his father-in-law. And this was actually who Dayton was working with at this lawn care repair shop when he called his father-in-law he asked him if investigators had searched inside of the wood burning stove that was at the shop but he wouldn't give him a reason as to why he was asking this his father-in-law then decided to take this large magnet and this was because the stove was still hot so he couldn't actually dig through the debris at the bottom with his hands so he uses magnet and he essentially hovers it over the bottom of the stove and what he finds is shocking dayton's father-in-law finds about 15 different bra clasps and some other hardware that is later determined to be hardware from The match to the shoe that was left at Jennifer Smith's crime scene. Dayton's father-in-law then takes these fragments and puts them inside of a paper bag and he takes it to investigators. This proves to be a crucial piece of evidence, but there was more evidence waiting to be found than authorities probably wanted. At the very beginning of deer hunting season in 1987, there was a hunter walking around the Malala forest in the very early hours of the morning. This hunter is trying to find a good spot for hunting when when he comes across this brown-colored patch of ferns and this patch of ferns really sticks out to this hunter because it is brown in color while everything else is green and healthy around it he then decides to sort of run his foot over the patch of ferns and this is when he reveals a deceased body lying on the ground when investigators head out to the scene of the body They begin moving the debris off of the body, and while doing this, they discover a second deceased body. You would think that discovering another body while investigating the first one is absolutely insane, but what if I told you that investigators found yet another one? Well, sadly, this is what happened, and this made the total of bodies so far three, which is just absolutely insane they were called out for one and they found two more that's scary Victim number one that was found had one missing foot, while victim number two had both of their feet missing. The feet had appeared to have been removed just right above the ankle, and all three of the victims were found completely nude. Right off the bat, after the discovery of the three victims, investigators decided to go a different route with the type of search that they would be carrying out. They decided that they needed to break this area up into 25 foot by 25 foot squares, and each square had a letter that was designated to it. They were really keeping good track of this investigation and all of the areas that they were searching. They then carried out a shoulder-to-shoulder search throughout these 25 foot by 25 foot sections, sorry, Uh, and they were trying to really just find any sort of anything that wasn't nature related anything was evidence because they had three unknown deceased individuals and it was quite a big deal to get this figured out as soon as possible this could be a serial killer Throughout their search, investigators recovered a number of different mini vodka bottles and mini orange juice bottles, and they also found some shoelaces that were most likely used as a type of restraint. Just northwest of where the three victims were located, a fourth body was recovered, so it is still in quite close proximity with the other victims, but in a different area. Before the first day of investigating had ended, authorities had recovered five bodies. Yes, five. Throughout the investigation and all of these recoveries, the bodies were obviously being taken from the scene to be further examined. And because of this, there was a smell all throughout the area of decay, which I've smelled something close to this before. And I say close because I've never smelled an actual dead body, obviously. But in high school forensics, on two different instances, I sort of got the opportunity to smell the closest thing to a dead body that I could think of. First, we did this really cool thing where we essentially recreated this body form, form? (laughs) Body farm, so to speak. So we got like these whole raw chickens and we had four of them and one of them we took the plastic off put it out in the open so it was essentially replicating a nude body just being left out in the elements and then another one we put in fish tank water to recreate pond water or the ocean kind of situation just a body of water that a body is found in and then another one we wrapped a t-shirt in and this was to recreate being left clothed, but still just out in the open. And lastly, there was one that was left in the plastic wrap and this was to recreate something along the lines of like a tarp or a trash bag on the body. This is one can imagine, smelled fucking horrendous, disgusting. We left them outside for probably two weeks or so and we had to go out there daily to check on them. We had to measure the maggots, take pictures, the whole thing. And quite literally, you could smell those bitches from a mile away. They were so nasty. And literally, like, on multiple occasions, people fucking stole our chickens. And I still still don't get that. I don't get it. I don't know what they did with these rotting, maggot-covered, disgusting-ass chickens. But I remember... Both of the forensic teachers were getting so pissed off and they, like, even put a camera out there and these motherfuckers put a bag over their head just to go steal these decomposing chickens. I, it, it just so stupid. <laughs> so stupid. And we actually ended up having to write a paper instead of finishing this body farm because these motherfuckers kept stealing our goddamn chickens. But I digress. Second, we had another forensics teacher who was not mine and she actually came over to our class one day and she offered to us the opportunity to smell these i would say they were like essential oils of sorts or maybe even like some sort of chemical i don't i don't really know they were in these little tiny glass bottles and there was two of them and she said these two mixed together imitated the smell of a dead body and i will say it was one of the strangest scents i have ever smelled It's very specific, it's almost sour, and to this day, I've never smelled anything remotely similar to it, so I think if I ever do happen to come across something like that, I will know, because it is very specific and nasty, and it bothered me for a while. But anyways, (laughs) I'll move on. (laughs) So, obviously, while investigators are removing these bodies from the scene, it begins to be too much for some of them. The smell is just too strong. So two of them decide to take a walk to go smoke a cigarette and take a little break. The two of them walk about a quarter of a mile up the road to go smoke and this is when they smell that terrible fucking smell again. Just 20 feet away from where they were standing is where they discover the sixth deceased body. Essentially, at this point, the investigation and search turns into almost an all-hands-on-deck sort of thing. This area is huge, and there is clearly a lot to uncover here. We have six people that are dead and found, killed, murdered in these woods. We need to figure out what's going on. The next step in this investigation would be to try and confirm the identities of these six victims, and all of the six of them were female and this is essentially all they had. A lot of them had been dismembered, and their level of decomposition was too far for their faces to be identifiable. On September 7th, 1987, and this is just one week after the bodies had been discovered, investigators get their first positively identified victim. This victim was Lisa Marie Mark, and she was just 23 at the time of her murder. She was married, and she was working as a sex worker in Portland, Oregon, and she was actually about to gain a large chunk of inheritance, and people around her said that this really could have changed her life for the better. It seemed as though all of these victims had suffered from the same type of trauma, from the restraints to the stabbings and also the dismemberment of their feet. However, one of these victims was very, very different. And this was actually the most recent victim. She had showed the least amount of decomp. Her name was Nondance K. Cervantes or Nani K. Austin. Trigger warning this attack is just extremely brutal and very upsetting. Nani K. was the only victim whose feet had not been removed, but something much more sinister happened to her. Nani had been cut from her pubic bone all the way to her breastbone, and then sadly her internal organs were pulled out of her body and just left there. This just absolutely breaks my heart. All of the murders were horrific and extremely upsetting, but humiliating her like this is just so fucked up, and it seriously just makes my stomach sink. She was just 26 at the time of her murder. The search of the Malala Forest took 9 days and the power of 200 individuals to carry out. After the search was complete, investigators had found a total of 7 deceased female bodies and around 500 pieces of evidence. While investigators began sifting through all of these 500 pieces of evidence, they began to notice some eerie similarities. Some of this evidence matches that of the evidence found at Jennifer Smith's crime scene, specifically the mini vodka and orange juice bottles. Not only this, but they found a knife that had been the same make and model as the knife that they had found at the Jennifer Smith scene. Quite suspicious, if you ask me. After following many leads, it seemed as though all of this evidence was pointing towards Dayton Leroy Rogers. Only six of the victims out of the seven were identified initially, and they had all been found to be young women who were at the time of their murder working as sex workers. It wasn't long before word had gotten out and other sex workers in the area began flooding the tip line. They had all been calling about this man who had picked them up and taken them out to the Moala forest, and all of these women stated that Dayton Rogers was that man. Detectives then go speak to to these women in person, and there was about 30 of them in total who came forward, which is just so many women. It's sickening. All of these women share the same story, but not only this, they share that Dayton had this very intense foot fetish. He would comment about the women's arches on their feet and he would rub their feet while also, this is gross, sorry, while also masturbating. Ew, I'm sorry. However, Dayton began getting increasingly more aggressive with these women. He would begin tying them up while also doing things with their feet one of the surviving victims of Dayton, who had been interviewed by authorities. While she was being interviewed, she asked authorities if the women had been found with no feet. And essentially asking them, you know, like, did he cut their feet off? Obviously, this took authorities by surprise because this information had not been released to the public about the removal of the victim's feet. It had not been shared. It was very quiet, very kept to the authorities. So it was very surprising that she asked this question. And she said that the reason that she asked is because Dayton had actually tried to cut her foot off with a hacksaw during her attack with him. And this was right above her ankle. What does that sound like? All the bodies that they found? Where was the foot cut off? right above the ankle. She se- she even goes as far as showing investigators this, and it is also later forensically proven to be caused by some sort of tool with a serrated edge. So, she basically is like, look, here's my fucking ankle. This man tried to cut my foot off. Crazy. Investigators truly had no idea why Dayton would let some women go and others he wouldn't, but they found that one of his living victims had essentially succumbed to the idea of dying like while he was trying to cut her foot off so she's basically like you know what kill me I don't fucking care and he stopped and he apologized to her and he took her home which is just is wild like because he wasn't fighting back or because she wasn't fighting back because she wasn't scared he was just like I don't care you're not entertaining enough goodbye Wild. In February of 1988, Dayton Leroy Rogers is tried for the murder of Jennifer Smith. During this trial, he tried to say that Jennifer was the one that was attacking him with a knife and she was trying to rob him. This obviously does not work and Dayton Leroy Rogers is found guilty of aggregate oh my god aggravated first degree murder i am so sorry (laughs) and he was sentenced to life in prison on march 30th 1989 the malala forest murders go to trial investigators had to prove that dayton was guilty of six different murders so this was a huge case They could only try him for six and not seven because the seventh victim had not yet been identified at this time. The jury deliberated for six hours and decided that Dayton Dayton Leroy Rogers was guilty and he was given the death sentence. The death sentence has been overturned on three separate occasions, but it always reverts back to the original sentencing each time. And he actually, even at one of these overturning the death sentence trial kind of things, he talks to the jury and he apologizes and it's just so... feel like you can tell that it's forced, tell that it's rehearsed, just not sincere at all. Still very cold, even though he's trying his hardest to show emotion. It's just, it's crazy. Eventually in 2013, the seventh victim was identified as Tanya Johnston and she was just 18 at the time of her murder. It is believed that there are more victims because as we talked about earlier with the wood burning stove, in the bra clasps that were found, there seemed to have been more than just eight victims. They found around 15 clasps. 15 to 8, there's, there's a difference. And there was also a time before the trial actually even began where his attorney basically put up this deal of sorts where if the prosecution did not pursue the death penalty, Dayton would show authorities where the rest of the bodies had been disposed of. Using the phrase, rest of the bodies, indicates that there was more, but it's not proven, but it's believed that there probably is more victims. This is the terribly heinous serial killer, Dayton Leroy Rogers. All right, everyone, so that brings our Wednesday case to a close. (sighs) Terribly sad, terribly, terribly sad situation. I am very happy that he is behind bars and is living his life out in prison because he deserves it. I think that's about it. Uh, I hope, genuinely, I hope that you enjoyed Spooky Week. Please reach out to me and let me know if there's anything that you would like for me to change for next year or if you kind of want to do the same thing, whatever. I just kind of want to know how you're feeling about the whole thing. And I think that's about it. Go follow me on my social medias and I'll tell you those here in a second. But yeah, I love you and I hope you enjoyed the episode. All right, my socials are email, the not so thenotsogratefuldeadpod at gmail.com. Website, the not so Instagram, the not so grateful dead underscore podcast, TikTok, the not so grateful dead pod, and Facebook, the not so grateful dead podcast with Grayson Decker. All right, I love you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your week, and I will see you for Sunday's episode. Bye bye.